0: I defend critical race theory, defend it to the nth degree. Why? Because I believe in freedom of thinking, I believe in freedom of teaching, I believe in freedom of listening, and I want critical race theory to be available to people, even though in certain dimensions I disagree with it very strongly. But we need to defend intellectual pluralism. And I think some people in critical race theory have not been as attentive to the importance of the defense of intellectual pluralism as they ought to have been. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Two weeks
1: ago, I shared my thoughts about the upcoming elections in Hungary and in France. I said that there was bad news from Hungary because it increasingly looked as for Viktor Orban would manage to be reelected. This is indeed what came to pass. This was not a fully free and fair election. Orban has now amassed so much power and so much influence, that the opposition could not compete on an even playing field. It had a lot less money at its disposal. It was restrained from advertising in the same ways the government could. It faced a very hostile media landscape, which has been reshaped by Orban over the last years, in part through corruption and the use of state funds for advertising. And yet the victory was clearer and more crushing than could have been feared, giving Orbán a constitutional majority for the coming years. It is now even more in doubt than it had been previously, whether the opposition will ever manage to remove Orbán from office by the ballot box. This means we now have an increasingly authoritarian country and one which by the way appears closer to Russia than to Ukraine in the middle of the European Union. I have long said that this is not just a tragedy for the people living in Hungary, but a serious threat to the legitimacy of the EU. The basic principle of power sharing between European nations only makes sense if all of the countries within the bloc are actually democratic. Sadly, it now appears that I may have been overly optimistic. Whereas betting markets put Macron as the overwhelming favorite a few weeks ago, they're now giving Le Pen a little over a 20% chance of winning the election. Second round polls, which used to have a relatively comfortable seven or eight points between Macron and Le Pen, now show the difference as being three points or sometimes four points. We are a last minute search, a the October surprise, or a relatively ordinary polling miss away from Le Pen being president of France. And given her xenophobia, given her close ties to Vladimir Putin, given the longstanding hostility to the basic laws and rules of a Republic in her political family, that is a very worrying prospect indeed. All of this shows two things. It shows the staying power of populism. It shows that once populists are part of a political system, you can never quite sleep soundly. You can never assume that they are gone forever that you have vanquished them in a lasting manner. But it also shows something about the impact of the war in Ukraine. Over the last months, there was a lot of hope that what is going on there is going to wake up Europeans and the citizens of other democracies, that people will punish and penalize those far-right and also far-left populists who have long maintained very close ties to the Kremlin. We now see in the polls in France that this is far less the case than we might have hoped. I don't think it's likely that Marine Le Pen will win in the second round of the elections on April 24th, but there's now a very real chance and we all should be very concerned about that. My guest today is Randall Kennedy. Randall is the Michael R. Klein Professor of Law at Harvard University, one of the most prominent legal scholars in the country, working on a range of issues from contract law, criminal law, to issues of race and legal theory. And we had a really broad conversation about racism and race relations in America, about the nature, the need for and also the problems with critical race theory. And finally, about how even somebody who calls himself a chastened optimist, as he does, can hold on to a vision of a better future in the United States. Randall Kennedy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've learned a lot from your work I feel like one of the big questions to ask about the American legal system and really the American political system is how to combine the recognition of the group specific injustices that have defined it for a really long time and the aspiration to a set of universal rules and norms that will actually treat everybody equally. How have you thought about this tension? And why do you tend to fall on the side of those who defend the aspiration to a form of universalism, even though we recognize that so often in American history, particular groups have been excluded from its purview?
0: Yeah, well, it's a big topic, and I've been wrestling with it, and uh, I continue to wrestle with it, and I'm conflicted. And I think in my writings, I show that conflict. I haven't satisfactorily synthesized it. So on the one hand, in some of my writing, I plant my flag with my people, by which I mean my Black people, my African-American people. And I will, you know, talk enthusiastically about my pride in what my people have accomplished in the face of such terrible oppression and deprivation. Sometimes I'll proceed in that manner. And then sometimes, on the other hand, I will say, what's good about race pride? Why should I take pride in being Black? People should not be ashamed of their race but for the very same reason so I've sometimes argued for the very same reason you ought not be ashamed of your race doesn't have anything to do with you similarly why should you take pride in your race you know i didn't have any control over my parents i didn't have any control over what society deems me to be racially so you know these are ideas that have been in tension in my writing and my thinking, and they still are.
1: So what are some of the points where they end up being in tension or perhaps even in conflict in a concrete way, which is to say, why isn't it possible to embrace each of the elements of what you just said 100% and not worry about ways that might come into conflict? Where is it that you find yourself actually pulled in different directions.
0: So in terms of your feeling of allegiance, should I feel more of an allegiance to Black people? And if I do, why should I feel? So, I mean, I can imagine a white person saying, I feel more... Allegiance to black people, because after all, black people have been marginalized. Black people have more need of my assistance, and that's why I'm partial to black people. Anybody of any complexion could say that. And actually, I'm rather drawn to that. I kind of like that idea. On the other hand, just suppose somebody says, I'm drawn to black people because I'm black. In fact, one hears this all the time. You know, we hear, I demand that. People who look like me, you know, be on, and you could fill in the blank, be on the TV show, be on the faculty, be wherever. Well, look like me. What's special about that? Where's the virtue in that? I mean, you know, white people could say that too in defense of, you know, the status quo. So why should this look like me? I want to have people be drawn to people like me. What's good about that? That's just a very concrete thing. And it gets very particular. You know, I remember there was a time not so long ago in my life when I could walk across campus. And anytime I crossed paths with a black person, There would be a certain nodding of the head. There would be a certain gesture. Maybe I would say something, you know, yo, or something, but there would be some gesture of recognition. And I took actually comfort in that and did it. I mean, that was a performance and I expected it in return. Well, that was reflective of of certain sentiments that were good. On the other hand, again was that it was reflective of a certain sort of tribalism is that a good thing now by the way it's a lot different i go across campus and i think because of the enlargement of you know just the changing demography of the campus it's not like that i cross paths with black people And, you know, some will engage in this ritual, but many will not. And, you know, question, is that a bad thing? Maybe it's good. Maybe that's a suggestion that, hey, listen, you know, cut out the habitual, automatic acknowledgement of the uniform of race, cut that out, and be more attentive to individuals. And so one might argue that, you know, now people are more attuned to individuals. They'll say hello, they'll give the nod, they'll give the gesture to people that they know, but they won't do that just based on the uniform of race. Any of that. these are some of the ways in which I think these issues crop up. I think they're important because I think that they have to do with what are we really after? What do we really want? You'll hear people say, for instance, people often say, I think it's still the ascendant conventional line with respect to race. Well, eventually we want to get to a place where race doesn't matter. I think that that is still the, I would say that probably the ascendant racial line. But is it true? Is it true really that, let's say, You know, black people, do black people really want a society in which organizations that have historically been black, do they want that to go by the wayside, even when they reach the racial promised land? I think that there needs to be more attention paid to questions like that.
1: I guess one concept that's a little bit in the same ballpark as what we're talking about is the idea of strategic essentialism, which I've been thinking a good bit about, which, as I understand it, was sort of the attempt to come to terms with a form of postmodernism, which basically said, look, all of these categories that people have historically used social constructs that we should mistrust. And that makes it hard to speak on behalf of a proletariat, or it makes it hard to speak even on behalf of Black people, on behalf of the subaltern around the world. And there's an attempt to say, well, look, we should actually uh, recognize that people have historically been discriminated against on the basis of these arbitrary racial and other ethnic and sometimes social categories And so we should actually try and encourage them to organize along those lines
0: in order to fight back against that injustice. Well, people have. When people are hurt, they often organize around the basis of the hurt, or at least the perceived basis of the hurt. We see that over and over and over again. Look at the power of nationalism around the world, it seems. That's much more difficult to organize people on the basis of universalistic aspirations. World War I, Marxists were really quite disheartened at the willingness of working class people to march to their deaths in droves under these various flags. But these various flags seem to be more inspiring. They seem to generate more loyalty than did uh, affiliations that um, could have been demarcated by class.
1: It seems to me like perhaps there's two separate questions here, the first of which is about, can we ever get rid of groups? Can we ever get rid of a human tendency to discriminate in favor of the in-group and against the out-group? And on that count, I agree with you. I'm very sceptical that it's ever possible to completely bypass what Jonathan sort of Haidt has is called groupishness. And in fact, when you look at groups of people who think of themselves as not being a member of a group, that itself is often the important marker of their identity. Tom Lehrer, the sort of 1960s comedian, has a line along the lines of, it's very important to love your fellow human beings. And... Some people do not do that. Some people hate the fellow human beings. And I hate people like that, right? So it's very easy to say, you know, I'm part of a group of cosmopolitan's, for example. And if you're not, well, then you're a bad person. And I get to legitimately discriminate against you. So I think we're always going to have groupishness of that form. And one really important question I'm asking myself is, how do we manage that to maximize the potential for benefit that can sometimes have, like sustaining schemes of social cooperation, but minimizing the very obvious dangers that also come with that. But that seems to me a little bit separate from the question of what basis do we have for the particular groups we form? And on that, something like nationalism in some contexts seems a little bit different, which is to say that often that is a identity that people feel like They choose because of some positive identification, obviously because of historical processes. But where they say, you know, I'm an Italian because we should really be ruled together and we have these cultural similarities and so on. That's different from some identities that are imposed because of oppression or imposed because of historical injustice. So I'm thinking of this as somebody who's a Jew, who calls myself a Jew, but who has no religious belief and whose parents and grandparents already had no religious beliefs, who grew up without any significant form of Jewish ritual, but for whom being Jewish was nevertheless an evident part of my identity, given my parents and grandparents' history and given that I grew up in Germany and so on. But that seems to me to be kind of different, a different way of accepting an identity in part because of its imposition in a context of injustice than something like Italian patriotism.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how to respond. I think that the question of identity and I like the idea of choice, though I think a lot of people do not. So for instance, you talk about the Italian people. Well, do they say that they are Italian by choice or do they just say, I am Italian? I think a lot of people In a lot of different, whether it's nationality, whether it's race, there's a lot of a real resistance to the idea of choice. So, for instance, in the United States, we've had these instances where you have a person whose parents are white. The child of the white parents decides that, you know what, I want to be black. And they present themselves to the world as black. And then once it's found out that their parents are, quote, white, people jump all over them. How dare you? What a betrayal. This is fraud. This is fraud. And then there's this unwillingness to accept, you know, I have chosen to be Black. And people say, you can't choose to be Black. In fact, people view that as a vice. I like the idea of choice. I like the idea of people choosing to be black, or for that matter, resigning. That does not bother me. You know, I'm resigning from the race. Okay, fine. Resign. Or somebody saying, you know, I really dig, you know, the way y'all do things. You know, your styles, music, this ethos, sentiment. I'm going to become black. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But what is going on with me is a notion of identity as choice. And I like the idea of identity as choice.
1: So I guess what does that mean at the individual level and what does that mean at the collective level? I suppose at the individual level, it means that we should live in a society where Identities play an important role, but there's a real fluidity about the extent to which it determines the fate of each of us and the extent to which uh, we ourselves choose to identify with the groups that we're from. I guess at the collective level, it doesn't necessarily need to imply fluidity, which is to say that for you, you think that something might be lost if every African American decided to resign from their race, and that may not be a realistic prospect in any case because of the way the world is structured. But that doesn't mean that particular individuals should somehow be thought of as being morally wrong or as being perhaps traitorous, as some might say, if they make that choice. So, yeah, help me puzzle through this.
0: Well, it is a puzzle. And like many important puzzles, this puzzle has left an imprint in our law. So, you know, in the United States, throughout, of course, we've had racial laws and the whole question of who was who was very important. I mean, whether you could be enslaved or not might very well depend on what race you were assigned to. Nowadays, there is an issue, so affirmative action. When affirmative action was first becoming somewhat prevalent, one question was, well, how will we determine who gets a benefit? And there were some people who were saying we ought not have affirmative action, because after all, if you have affirmative action, that's going to necessitate your putting a racial designation on people. How are we going to do that? Won't that lead to all sorts of intrusive, obnoxious investigations, for goodness sake? What are we going to ask people? You know, who are your parents? Are we going to have a hair test? Are we going to have a lip test? Are we going to have a nose test? You had, by the way, such tests in American history. I talked about slavery in the segregation era. There were many cases involving, is this person a Negro or not? And, you know, you'd bring in anthropologists. You'd bring in all sorts of people to give expert opinion on things. Okay, today... We have affirmative action in a wide array of contexts. Question, how do we answer the question of whether someone is eligible? Now, the way this is worked out in many institutions, especially educational institutions, is basically an honor system. You check a box. Does anybody check up? On the checking of the box, no. No one checks up on the checking of the box. You just check the box and that's that. Now, there hasn't been a lot of writing about this. My sense, however, is that a decision, maybe it was an implicit decision, maybe it was an unconscious decision, but a decision was made that we are going to use an honor system Because even though there is the specter of fraud, there are people who might check the box, even though they themselves do not honestly view themselves as being in that category, we're willing to take that. We will just take that as a price of doing business because we really don't want to get in to policing the identity line. I think, frankly, in most of American society, that's the way it has worked out. To go back to the strand of a conversation
1: about the way in which affirmative action might create those categories. So one thing we talked about is sort of the amount of straight up fraud, and that I think we share the impression that's quite rare. I wonder whether there's another thing which might be more common and how we should feel about that, which is people who do have a genuine connection to a particular ethnic group, but who don't have a very strong identity as belonging to it, Mm -hmm. being incentivized to own that identity, at least for the purposes of ticking the box, but perhaps for purposes of how they think of themselves and present themselves more broadly. And this is certainly something that friends and acquaintances of mine have had. People, for example, who might be in the academic job market and who are told by their advisors, look, look we have these links to Latin America, really you should lean into that through ticking that box or through having us mention that in the recommendation letter, or perhaps even by adopting a first name that signals that more clearly. So I wonder how we should feel about about that element or, or that effect that the system might
0: have. Well, I mean, I'm not sure how we should feel. I mean, it could be a very bad thing if it is, for instance, coercive, and prompts people to adopt a self-presentation that they themselves view as false but they adopt it for, you know, strategic reasons. So, you know, I suppose it can be bad. On the other hand, when people have been engaged in a struggle and have mobilized around identities that have come under pressure, well, when you do that, There's certain entailments, and one entailment is, that's right, you might dress in a certain way, you might adopt a certain posture, you might call yourself a certain thing, you're down with the cause, and you're down with the cause, and in being down with the cause, you do various things to advance that group, and some of those things can be very good, but like I say, can it have a bad side? Yes, it can. There were two things I want to throw in the hopper here. You know, and a couple of times you talked about this question of racial fraud being rare. We really don't know that much about it. There is one context in which we do know about racial fraud, and there is a context in which racial fraud has actually been punished criminally. So, for instance, in settings where you have businesses. Is this a minority owned business? And there are people who, yes. And come to find out that the nominal head of the company was a racial minority person, but the actual force behind the company, the finance behind the company, let's say, was from a white person. Well, there have been people who've been prosecuted and sent to jail for that. So there is an element that we know about. That's interesting. So there what happens is not that, say, the business owner
1: said, I should count as Latino, and therefore I count as a minority-owned business, and a court of law determined that this person did not have a legitimate claim to be considered Latino. It's that I, who really am Latino, said... In this scenario, I will present as being the person really running and benefiting from his business, but actually in the background there's somebody who is white and who never claimed to be who's running it. So that's interesting. That the only punishment in this context, where the punishment is not based on saying the self-representation
0: was fraudulent, is a taking full of the company. That's very interesting. Let me give you one other case. It's a Massachusetts case, very interesting case involving two brothers, the Malone brothers. These guys wanted to be firefighters, white guys. So they apply to be firefighters. They do not succeed first time around. The second time around, they mark that they are black and they get jobs. And they're firefighters for a while. And then one of the brothers applies for a promotion. And I think he gets the promotion. And when he gets the promotion, a person writes an anonymous letter saying, these guys are white, this is fraud. It goes all the way up to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. A single justice of the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts decides the case. And he does an interesting thing. An agency ruled against the brothers goes up to the single justice of the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. And... What the justice says is, I am not going to ask the question whether the Malone brothers are white or not. That is not the question I'm going to ask. Rather, I'm going to ask the question whether the Malone brothers actually think of themselves as white or not, or black or not. So it's not a question of what they are, It's a question of good faith. What do they think they are? And the justice ruled against them, saying that based on the evidence, they really do not think of themselves as black. And he looked at evidence like how had they over time referred to themselves? Are they members of the black firefighters organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he came to the conclusion that they did not view themselves in good faith They did not view themselves honestly as Black people, and so therefore he ruled against them.
1: That is very interesting. It's a very ingenious way of sidestepping what the obvious lurking danger here is, which is the state reverting to some kind of official determination of Blackness in a way that it was used for very unjust purposes throughout American history. I wonder whether it might have perverse consequences in different circumstance. So I'm thinking of somebody like my friend Thomas Chatterton Williams, who believes that we should be race abolitionists, who has, in a certain kind of way, resigned from the Black race in the way that you talked about it earlier. Now, I think in very obvious ways, Thomas does and should count as Black. His father grew up in segregated Texas. I think in various cultural ways, Thomas proudly claims a membership in some form of Black culture. And yet, at the most profound level, he would say, well, I'm not black. And so I wonder whether under similar circumstances, this judge would need to rule by the same set of standards that Thomas does not count as black. Now, perhaps that's just the consequence that it should be entailed from that intellectual position to not being able to tick that box in various applications and and I don't want to speculate here, but perhaps Thomas in fact doesn't because precisely he thinks that these catalysts shouldn't exist. But it's an interesting complication that I'm sort of thinking
0: through. It is an interesting complication. It seems to me, however, that if someone truly believes, if someone is truly a race abolitionist, I could understand them saying, no, I'm not going to check the box. I don't believe in this stuff. Okay, fine. Don't.
1: That would seem to be, I suppose, a way to live up to that sense We've talked a little bit about the law now, and I want to broaden that discussion a little bit. Your work has dealt, not exclusively, but in part with various questions to do with race in American law. And at the same time, you've been quite critical for a long time now of what has become the sort of dominant way of working on race in American law, and particularly of critical race theory. So I guess I would love to understand what you see as the limitations about intellectual tradition, and how it is that we can take seriously the many issues that race does evidently raise in the issue of American law, without entirely embracing it.
0: Yeah. Well, a couple of things. First, when people use the term critical race theory, we need to be very careful about you know exactly what are we talking about. When I hear the term now, I put quotation marks around it immediately because often now, when people make references, especially people who are attacking it from the right make references to it, they're making references to a boogeyman that they have created to advance their political aims. And so they have created something that is unattractive something that is completely doctrinaire, something that they can mobilize against. So that's the boogeyman version of critical race theory. Now, there is another version, the version of critical race theory that would be writings and speeches by a wide range of people, the people with whom I'm most familiar, are people in legal academia. And indeed, I think it's right to say that it was in legal academia that this term really took off the writings of people like Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Richard Delgado, Mari Matsuda, Charles Lawrence, Derek Bell, Gary Peller, others. So, you know, what do I think about their work, work that stems from the 1980s and has gone under the you know banner critical race theory. I have various responses to it. Let me start off with my positive response. My positive response is that critical race theory, the people who call themselves critical race theorists are on to a very important point. The central point of critical race theory is that racism is deeply embedded in American life, indeed virtually ubiquitous. And that, it seems to me, is correct. And, you know, whether you call yourself a critical race theorist or not, I know plenty of people who do not call themselves critical race theorists, but who would embrace the proposition that racism has been and is, to this day, a central feature of American life. Whether we're talking about the most public aspects of American life, voting, office holding, jury service, to the most intimate spheres of American life, friendship, sex, adoption, marriage, So, you know, to the extent that the critical race theorists have insisted that, A, if you're interested in knowing about American life and American law, race has got to be there front and center. You got to know a lot about race. Fine. I applaud that. I have no problem with that. Now, are there features with which I do have problems? Yes, yes. There are a variety of features of critical race theory with which I have problems. Well, what are they? Well, one that was pretty fundamental had to do with the relationship between status and thought. So I think I was probably introduced One of the writings that was my introduction to this thing that is now known as critical race theory was an article by a guy named Richard Delgado. I think it was called The Imperial Scholar. And basically, the point of the article was that white legal academics, most of whom were liberals, had, in his view, colonized academia, including race relations law such that they referred to one another, they talked to one another, they debated with one another, and they ignored people of color and implicitly put down scholars of color. That was the claim. And in making the claim, and he sort of said, that's what's going on. And in elaborating his point, he said, this is bad, And of course, if it was true, I would agree it was bad. But then he went on to say that not only is this bad insofar as it is excluding people on a non-meritocratic basis, but he went on to suggest that it's also bad because after all, minority scholars have more of a claim To attention than other people, than whites, because of their status. Minority scholars have more insight. Why? Because they're minorities, for goodness sakes. They have more insight into American racial problems. And so they should be given actually more credence because of their racial identity. Now, No, I'm very much against that, because if you go along with that, that means that racial identity now becomes an intellectual credential. It means that we can appropriately put boundary lines in the realm of culture. And I'm totally against all of that. As far as I'm concerned, you write about a subject And then I want to read what you have written. And if you have written something that is great and insightful, fine. It's great and insightful. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if you're American. Maybe you're from some other place. I don't care. I don't think that where you're from or these identities constrict our ability to know things, and to the extent that this idea of identity becoming a part of knowledge certification, to the extent that that was part of CRT, I disagreed, and disagreed very strongly. There was another thing, another aspect of critical race theory which prompted me to, you know, disagree. And it's very relevant to discussions going on today. There were certain critical race theorists. Notice I said certain critical race theorists because, you know, there are a lot of people who are critical race theorists and they disagree among themselves. So I'm not saying that there's some sort of monolithic CRT and they all believe the same things, but there were some who believe, for instance, that, there has been no appreciable racial change in the United States of America. You know, what we have today is neo-slavery. Now, now, as far as I'm concerned, that's untenable. One person who was very important in developing this idea was a person who was a colleague of mine and a friend of mine, Derek Bell. The permanence of racism. And, you know, he basically came to believe, for instance, that the second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, he applauded it, but, I mean, basically said, yeah, but, you know, ultimately, white folks stayed on top. Now, I guess it all depends on what accounts for you as appreciable change. The fact that there was a Black American who was the president of the United States for eight years, for me, that counts as appreciable change. You know, is it revolutionary? Does it mean that everything has changed? No. Does it mean that because Barack Obama became president of the United States, does that mean that we didn't have a racial problem in the United States? No. Didn't mean any of those things. But did it mean that racial beliefs, racial habits, racial conduct had changed in my lifetime? Yes! So that's another place where I disagreed with critical race theorists. And finally, I disagreed with some critical race theorists who, in my view, are all too inattentive to the importance of protections for civil liberties. Of course, it's ironic to say this now, since critical race theory is under attack by people who want to erase critical race theory, you know, and I defend critical race theory, defend it to the nth degree. Why? Because I believe in freedom of thinking. I believe in freedom of teaching. I believe in freedom of listening. And I want critical race theory to be available to people, even though in certain dimensions I disagree with it very strongly. But we need to defend intellectual pluralism. And I think some people in critical race theory have not been as attentive to the importance of the defense of intellectual pluralism as they ought to have been.
1: There is a lot in that. There is a fantastic answer. One of the things I'm struck by reading this work, and I've been immersing myself in reading Richard Delgado and Kamala Crenshaw and Derek Bell in particular, as well as some of the other figures you've mentioned, is the rejection of the perfectibility of a social world and the rejection in particular of the idea that we may be able to use some of the longstanding standards and principles we've had in the United States in order to bring people who have been unjustly excluded from them under their purview. Derek Bell, who you mentioned, came to be deeply ambivalent about Brown versus Board of Education. Arguing in some moods, and I feel like his position on this topic is complicated and a little ambivalent, but arguing at least in some moods, that in fact the united states should have provided african americans with high quality segregated schools instead of integrating public schools so to me the biggest concern about not the sort of bogeyman of critical race theory that is out there today but about the original set of you know sophisticated interesting scholars who adopted the name of critical race theory for themselves is this deep rejection of a future in which we can use those kinds of universalist principles to make progress towards real justice. And I guess my question for you is, um, what kind of vision of the future do you think that we should be aiming towards? You know, what of the critical race theory tradition is helpful in thinking about what kind of future we want and in what ways should we reject that critical race theory tradition in order to get to a better future?
0: Yeah the future one thing that critical race theory was really reacting against a very central thing that critical race theory was reacting against was the anti-discrimination standard which for some people was allied with color blindness You know, the idea that everybody should be treated the same, the idea that let's have an anti-discrimination standard and let's go on forward from there. Now, I think that some of the people in critical race theory reacted very strongly against that on two grounds. One ground was... Well, if we adopt the anti-discrimination standard, at least certain versions of it, certain versions of it are used against affirmative action. If you adopt a certain version of anti-discrimination and then affirmative action comes to the fore, they say, hey, this is racial discrimination and it should be struck down. And I think there were people in critical race theory who said, we don't like this because if we allow that, if we allow that regime to go forward, what will happen is that we will not be able to do anything about the accumulated disabilities that we are inheriting from the past. If you just have an anti-discrimination, you know, strict anti-discrimination standard forward-looking, what about past disabilities? That was one of the arguments. And of course, you know, there were liberals who said, oh, the way we're going to handle that is to have a time-bounded exception to our anti-discrimination standard. And frankly, that's what we've had for decades. I mean, that was, in a sense, uh, Harry Blackman or for that matter, uh, Justice O'Connor. We're going to hold to the aspiration of an anti-discrimination standard, but for a certain period of time, we're going to have an exception. Well, the critical race theory people said, you know, we don't trust your exception. There was another thing going on, I think, with people with critical race theory, some, and that had to do with, I think, many people in critical race theory had been inspired by the Black Power Movement, had been inspired and animated by certain features of Black nationalism. And they really didn't like this, you know, what race blind, we're all the same under the skin. No, 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 no. That's, that stuff is marginalizing groupiness that we find very important. It's very important to our identity, that we are part of, you know, a black nation. And I think these two things were part of what was animating a reaction against the sort of liberalism, the race law liberalism that they found, you know, unsatisfying. You know, there's a competition going on. There's a competition for attention. And so you have liberal people, you know, talking their thing. If you're sort of, you know, new on the block, you want to get attention. You want to create your own niche. Well, you pick strategic fights. I'm not accusing anybody. People do that all the time. Law and economics, for goodness sakes. In fact, every uh, critical legal studies. That's what people do to put themselves on the map, the academic map. There's another thing that's going on far as criticizing people. Oftentimes you criticize people who are at least going to be willing to talk to you, to take you seriously. Richard Posner was not going to take critical race theory people seriously, though he did write about critical race theory. I will give him that. But frankly, he was rather dismissive, as were, you know, other conservative legal thinkers. Liberal legal thinkers, however, were not going to be dismissive. They were going to be very hurt when scholars of color accused them of being racially insensitive or racist you know, white liberal legal academics were no, 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 no. And they were, you know, let's talk. Let's do this. Let's do that. They were going to, you know, you're wrong for the following reasons. They were going to engage. It made a lot of sense to jump on people who were going to respond to you in a way that was actually going to be rather helpful. In thinking about the history of critical race theory, you know one thing that it seems to me the historian of critical race theory is going to have to confront, again going back to Richard Delgado, if these scholars were such imperialists, if they were so insensitive, how does one account for critical race theory getting traction? and actually blossoming. I mean, it's not like Kimberly Crenshaw was, you know, sent to Siberia. She's a professor at UCLA. She's a professor at Columbia. Nice places. Chuck Lawrence was at Stanford, the dean of Boston University Law School, a leading critical race theorist. It's not like folks have been sit to the margins of academic life. They actually occupy, you know, important positions. One has to ask the question, how did that happen? How did that happen? There's a problem, and I have seen this problem in in my own work. So I'm very concerned about civil liberties and just the state of, you know, freedom of expression, and freedom of thought, and write about it. I think that there are occasions on which I have been more exercised by people who were ideologically closer to me than people who were on the right. So, you know, I've gotten really quite exercised with people who were ideologically close to me, but who I thought were acting in very repressive ways. You know, some professor reading from a book mentions a certain word. Discipline that person. You can't mention that word. And I've, you know, gotten really hot under the collar about that. But then when right wing comes with its campaign against critical race theory, there was a part of me, you know, I was I was horrified by it. I didn't like it. But there was a part of me that said, well, what can you expect? And I did not immediately pick up pen and paper and go after it. And partly I didn't go after it because my expectations were so low. I think that's a mistake. I think that intellectuals, should recognize that there is a problem of moral and intellectual hygiene, and we need to be aware and attentive to problems of moral and intellectual hygiene wherever those problems show up. If they're on the right, fine, go after it. If they're in my camp, the camp of progressives, okay, go after it. But wherever it pops up, it seems to me, we need to attend to it. Because, frankly, you you never know who in what setting is going to be powerful. Just to
1: close off the conversation, I'm going to push you a little bit more about the future. In a recent interview based on a collection of essays you published last year, Say It Loud, you wrote that we said that my ambitions on the racial front have shrunk, I feel chastened, That's why I'm talking about racial decency as opposed to racial equality. My sense of what is possible in the foreseeable future has been diminished. How much should we aim for in the future? How much can we aim for? How can we combine that sense of disappointment with the creation of a vision of a future that we'd actually want to live in?
0: Yeah, two things. One, for all of my adult life, I have been a racial optimist. I have been part of that community that says, we shall overcome. Despite slavery, despite segregation, despite all of the horrors that are part of our past, we shall overcome. And part of the reason why I have felt that way is because, well, The trajectory of African Americans in America has been, as far as I'm concerned, best captured by the title of John Hope Franklin's wonderful synthetic work, From Slavery to Freedom. And, you know, I'm 67 years old. I was born in 1954. I've seen considerable change in American life and I've benefited tremendously from change in American life and to the extent that there has been change that suggests that well if there has been change can't there be change can't there be more change and I think that they can now when I wrote that passage that you read I was really very much in the grip of a really terrible feeling that had been generated by Trump. had been generated by the Trump winning the election and you know, becoming president of the United States. I mean, if somebody had asked me, you know, 15 years ago, can a person like Donald Trump become president of the United States? I'd have said, no, no, come on, let's talk about something serious. Well, clearly I was wrong. I was wrong. I've written on several occasions, i said, you know, any ambitious politician with national aspirations would avoid trafficking openly in racial resentment, racial animus, even if they felt it, even if they believed it, they would cover it up because it would be politically suicidal. I was wrong. Donald Trump became president and then he almost won. The last election was close. There were some dollops. The United States of America enjoyed some good luck in avoiding the re-election of Donald Trump. In any event, that really shook me. And I said in my book of essays, well, I'm still an optimist, but I'm I'm a shaken optimist. I'm a chastened optimist. And indeed, I suggested that part of my optimism was nothing more than faith, because after all, I've got three kids in their 20s and I want them to have a good life. And so, just as a matter of faith, that was part of my optimism. All right, well, I'm talking to you today, and I feel I feel a little bit differently than when I wrote that introduction to my book of essays. I still feel chastened, but I also think it's important while we recognize the importance and the power of racism in American life, we also have to, we also should fully recognize and appreciate the power of anti-racism in American life. Yes, it's very important to know about John C. Calhoun. It's also important to know about William Lloyd Garrison. It's important to know about George Wallace. It's also important to know about the people who rose up against George Wallace. It's important to know about Trumpism, but it's also important to recognize the people of all complexions who are doing all that they can to save the country. So, you know, if I had to choose one person to embrace in terms of Racial thinking about America. The person who I would choose would be Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. had seen racism up close. He was not a sentimentalist. He was realistic. But Martin Luther King Jr. said in the hours before his death, I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with you, but we shall get there. And I guess at this moment, I want to revisit Martin Luther King Jr. and re-embrace that and other aspects of is thinking. And so, you know, will there be a need for struggle? Yes. Will there be a need for struggle for a long time? Yes. But is there realism in thinking that through intelligent, persistent, collective effort we can create a better United States of America, yes, let me stop there. That's where I am at this moment. Randall Kennedy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Be well.